Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag and I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right, I mean? No, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays Amin's floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get Amin in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Tom, I am one of the 1% of Americans who doesn't know who Kelly Clarkson is, but you can attest she's a really big deal, right? Sit down, big Kevin Arnovitz. And I'm Tom Haverstrow. Tom, we're getting there, aren't we? Like, little by little, we're picking off the good, not great chefs or contestants, and we're starting to boil down. Are we not? We are, Kevin. I was thinking the same thing, is that we're, uh, there's no real surprises here. Like, I think 
in terms of how we drafted the juggernauts going into this competition, top shift 17 all-stars, we had a pretty, uh, pretty good idea based on past performance on Top Chef, who is going to you know float to the top? And the cream really is rising to the top here. And I really feel like, uh, not to say that these chefs aren't any good. Of course, they're here in the first place. They're, they're one of the best chefs in the world. So with that said, I do think that we are getting the best competitors of this season, winnowing out the other ones. And here we are, uh, four episodes in the book and in the books. And I really do feel like these are the strongest chefs we have this season. Yeah, and I, I do want to say one exception to that is that I don't think either of us had a had a sense of just how much Melissa has grown as a chef relative to any other of the chefs uh, relative to their first seasons. Um, she is a force. There is confidence. She has an aesthetic, Tom. Like you've, I noticed it with a lobster wonton last week, the coconut corn soup. This week, you look at a Melissa dish, and it has a distinct quality, a distinct style. Uh, those those pretty little oil drops along this lovely surface. It's rich yet minimal. All these wonderful things. Uh, neither, I think all of uh, both of us respected her uh, as a middle of the pack contestant, and, and she has emerged right now is elite and is confident and is dominant as any chef. In the competition, we're going to get more. We're going to talk more about this, but but just first impressions. This is your this is on this is your team here. Yeah, Melissa, whew, man, she's coming in and just mowing people down. And I, it, you know, she's greatly improved from uh, Top Chef Boston. I think it was season twelve. She she did go to Mexico with the the final four. Gregory was there. Um, Doug was there. It was a it was a it was a juggernaut uh, season. So she really has shown in this competition this year at Top Chef All Stars, uh, just bring it every single dish. And uh, she's got two in a row. And man, I really feel good about her being on my team. A mid mid round pick for me, and probably the most value we're getting so far. Yeah, the other big story for me this week is we finally got the first inkling of interpersonal conflict. A little bitchiness, little little backbiting. Um, you know, I think Malarkey's fuckery came to the surface for the first time. But you always wait for a little conflict, a little static. Got the first hints of static. Yeah, some of the clicks, some of the soap opera, uh, high school drama from the beginning – you saw at the top of the episode and then throughout this episode, there was some interpersonal drama, like you said. And the funny thing is, it wasn't Leanne or Brian Malarkey who goes down. It's Lisa. Has to go down as one of the worst pickups in Top Chef Pack Your Knives history, Kevin. Yeah, we, we will definitely talk more about that. Uh, I, I don't know. I need to get the spreadsheet up, Tom, but I, I don't know how I'm doing. I'm I'm sort of I'm sort of blocking it out. I'm I'm just kind of taking it a week at a time, Tom, because because I, <laughs> I I'm struggling in the old standings. You in, wish in you Lark had a you have fi finale. You wish you had the fifty pointer now. Um, I I, I do wish I had the <laughs> but no no no. You know, in, in, that would be in violation of, of the good spirit, um, of the rules. So we start with a we start with a quick fire. It is the Kelly Clarkson quick fire. I'm going to give this over to you, and, and I say this with with no contempt or scorn. I'm just, I'm I'm, I'm kind of a Martian, and I have these holes and blind spots in my pop, my knowledge of popular culture post like 1995, and this is just one of them. Like I've never seen an episode of American Idol. I, I my 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 music tastes are a little Nietzsche. Like I just don't. I a lot of this stuff is lost on me. So so take us through the premise. And more importantly, I mean, everybody was just really jazzed to see this person. So <laughs> this explains person, this but like she's put an this alien in cultural kind of, context for me. Like she's some sort of alien from from outer space. No, I think I'm an alien. Like <laughs> this is like Eric took his mom to the Kelly Clarkson show in Los Angeles when she came to visit from Western Pennsylvania. Like this is this person is a big deal, and I didn't really recognize her. Well, maybe because I think she came in as like a country singer kind of from American Idol. She started – and this is kind of the road that a lot of pop stars like uh, Taylor Swift, they come in as a country artist and then they boom, super pop star. Um, and since you've been gone – since you've uh, since you've been gone, as Ke Karen said, was 
a huge hit. I did not know that it was a lesbian anthem, uh, according to Karen. But you know what? Maybe that's that's why uh, it, it doesn't hit certain areas of uh, pop culture. Is, is for her, it was the song. And you, she said it in the episode that she's gone to so many of her concerts. And that was really endearing. Um, but there's... You know, there's a bunch of hits. There's Since You've Been Gone. There's Because of You. Um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Da, 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 da. And then there's like the, of course, My Life Would Suck Without You, which is just, you know, right there in the he- I mean, there's no hiding what that song is about. Um, she she is a huge pop star. And also, again, shout out to the ALS Pepper Challenge. She did the, the Pepper Challenge, ate a habanero to raise money for ALS. So she is... Uh, number one in my book, always, as well as Karen. I like this quick fire um, simply because it produced some really beautiful plates. And Kelly Clarkson is kind of a big deal. All right. So to, to kind of review the the general premise of the quick fire is she's got this new movie out or coming out called Trolls. Um, I was informed that unfortunately, though he won the quick fire and is supposed to take Nini, the red carpet premiere was canceled because of the coronavirus. Uh, I was told um, – uh, by a certain someone in my house who covers the film industry for a major <laughs> national outlet. Wait, is that, uh, so, is that, uh, is that breaking news? Uh, I don't think it's breaking news. I, I think pretty much every <laughs> red carpet premiere that was supposed to occur this spring has been canceled. Um, but apparently it's, it's a very color-oriented animation thing. So there's these bright rainbowy colors, and the chefs had to take an ingredient from each of the color groups, which, by the way, is a pretty generally basic non-confining challenge except for one thing there is no real blue food in the world so uh, I, I think to me it was interesting to watch what everybody how everybody was going to incorporate the blue ingredient which could have included peruvian purple potatoes or like rock candy that was blue or cotton candy that was blue <laughs> um i think there were some blueberries um and so it was very interesting uh to see sort of the way for this challenge was how do you incorporate to me, incorporate the blue stuff. Yeah. And and just also tactically, just watching everybody, you get a real glimpse of how people think by how they approach a quick fire challenge. Like, do they make it simple for themselves or do they make it particularly hard for themselves? Yeah, I thought the blue thing was interesting. Talking game theory here, Kevin, would you go for blue first because the – the drop off from like a good blue flavor is so great. Like you get blueberries and then what? Like you get the blue potatoes. I didn't think I saw any blue corn. Did um, anyone do blue cheese? Did anyone end up using blue cheese? I don't I don't know, but that I feel like that's the first place I go is hit the blue rack because there's such a big drop off and you just don't know what you're going to you don't want to end up with cotton candy. I thought it was interesting Brian Malarkey was like, "Yeah, I'm just eating cotton candy here." Um so I thought that this was um, a, a really good quick fire because it produced the, the beautiful plates. But I do think that the blue uh, – any food that you think is blue is actually mostly purple. It's right. Like I mean that's the Peruvian pur- – literally they're called Peruvian purple potatoes. But if you put a little white vinegar in the pot when you boil those purple potatoes, they kind of remain bluish. Mm. Um, it's a little trick uh, someone taught me. But uh, those – I mean, it seemed like, yeah, actually Karen was the one person who used blue cheese, which makes all the sense. And she finished on the top or near the top in the Quick Fire Town. She ended up doing a beef and pomegranate tartare. And, hey, you just need a little blue cheese. She goes for saffron for the yellow, which is kind of brilliant. Like, like Karen had very good hacks on this challenge, and I don't think it's a coincidence that she finished in the top three. Yeah, for sure, um, and which is cool because she really – sometimes – you don't want to meet your heroes. Uh, either the heroes are dicks uh, or they're just uh, you know, not what you made up, up, up to be in your head. And so Karen didn't get overwhelmed by this, by this competition, this, uh, this challenge because of Kelly Clarkson, and she produced a great dish. Yeah, It seemed like the way to kind of do blue was a lot of people use the cotton candy or the blue sugar to create a sweet, spicy, sour sauce, right? So you have, um, you know, you have like M- Melissa – uh, who had the sweet and sour sauce with the salmon. I think she used blueberries. You had Lisa, who finished in the top three for the quick fire, who got the blue cotton candy in there, but combined it with chili, so you get like a little sweet spicy for your for your citrus brown butter, brown butter ribeye. Gregory, um, who ends up winning the quick fire. Tom, Gregory is back and, and just did a classic Gregory dish, right? So he does this butternut squash plantain soup, pickles some fruit, 
and of course adds a little spice with the chilies. It's a classic Gregory sweet, sour, spicy balance. Like this is what this man does. Um, he's just going to nail his protein, or in this case, his soup, and then you get those three flavor profiles, or just qualities rather, and you just you combine them with perfect balance. That, that's Gregory. And by the way, and you're never going to finish on the bottom, like ever. Gregory comes in with his first quick fire win. Uh, of course, in seasons past, he's uh, he's been a juggernaut on the quick fires. In season twelve, Boston, we talked about it with Melissa. But he had five quick fire wins, which is the most quick fires of any competitor in this competition. Uh, five out of, I think, like 15 or 14 chances. I mean, that's one out of three challenges he's going to win the quick fire. So he wins another one here. Uh, he is, as he said on the episode, the quick fire king. Yeah, and he's kind of the Greg Maddox of, of Top Chef in the sense that and I go back to this. I, I don't think he ever puts a plate together that, as you would say, is too tweezery or is just so high concept as to, wow, it's just I'm going to do a piece of fish or I'm going to do carrots or I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick a very recognizable, just versatile main and I'm going to just get the flavors right and the accompaniments right. There's never going to be too much on the plate. There's never going to be too little. I'm going to throw 88-mile-per-hour fastballs that are perfectly located, um, and, 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 I'm, and I'm never going to make a bad decision. I think that's the thing with, with Gregory. He never makes a bad decision. Other chefs, you know, you can make a bad decision that turns out okay, or you kind of hide the weakness on the dish. Gregory never makes a bad decision. <laughs> no. He's so good. And Kevin, how about the little detail? Did you know he was an ultra runner, like an ultra marathoner? So where we go from here is there were some noble losing efforts in the quick fire. Nini, she uses, she has a really interesting instinct, right? Which is, you know, what is gnocchi? Gnocchi is generally a little potato dumpling. Um, I'm going to use the purple Peruvian potatoes. Problem is, is I think they're a little too starchy just having uh, worked Mm. with them. And uh, so, so it's a clunker. I, I don't think it really matters. Her shrimp was a little lonely on that plate. Coconut curry broth. It may or may not have been complimentary of the pasta. It was less unified, I think, than a usual Nini dish. Um, Brian, I kind of feel badly for Brian, and and, and I don't. I, this is going to sound like a criticism of Kelly Clarkson, and it's not. But I just got the sense that ooh, it was mushy. Well, it's a ceviche, right? Like it's going. <laughs> it's not going to taste like. Your, 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 your cooked shrimp at a cooked shrimp restaurant. Like, this is not bubba gump here, right? Like, and I'm not saying she was wrong. Yeah. I just, like, no, I don't I hear what you're she, saying. She didn't get the ceviche, right? Like, she doesn't get the dish. But in my, in my experience with ceviche, with shrimp in the ceviche, they're not, like, gooey. They're not, they're not like that. A lot of them. Well, she said the it was ha- mushy, right? Mushy, right? If, if the acidity usually cooks the shrimp a little bit. So, um, I get what she's saying. I also get if Brian wanted to counter and just be like, welcome to raw uh, food. Yeah, I know this right. is raw seafood here. Uh, but you know what? Uh, to, to rewind a little bit to, uh, to Nini, it's never good when the chef, when the judge says, is this X? Is, when, she, when Padma says, is, is this gnocchi? That's not a good side. So not Nini side. Nini had to say, "Oh, it's seared. Yeah, it's kind of gnocchi." Um, but yeah, I get I get what you're saying with the with the ceviche and the shrimp. Um, and and I don't know if this was edited out, but I'm sure Voltaggio in the back of his mind was like, "You know what? Uh, that's the way I wanted it." Yeah. Uh, am I supposed to worry that Nini's put together a couple quick fire clunkers, or do I not worry? Mm, yeah. Yeah, no, I. You're worried. You would be worried for me. I, I would be behalf. worried for you. Um, and and I usually think that this is her strength that she comes up with a vision and she executes. But the last couple times she is not. So uh, I don't think it's. I don't think she's going to be on the bottom here. But um, no, I, I'm with you. It's something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I, I, I think this is one of the, the the great questions about Top Chef in general is, you know, quick fires obviously do have some reward and some punishment occasionally, right? Generally, reward immunity becomes more common as the season goes on. And if you lose, I mean, you get the last pick of this or that, or, or there's some recourse for your performance in the quick fire as it relates to what advantage or disadvantage you get. But I never know how seriously, you know, quick fire can often just be a place to throw stuff against a wall. Uh, yes. Every elimination challenge has its, it, its general rules or limitations, but quick fires are particularly, I mean, you're, you're generally having to 
make stuff out of nothing in 20 minutes. So I, I don't know whether I'm supposed to be concerned because I am still obviously very bullish on Nini. She's done nothing but good work in the elimination challenges. She's just had a couple of whimsical dishes that have not land in recent quick. Well, she is well liked. We do know that she hands over the can opener to, to Gregory and gets the, gets the uh, assist to great Gregory. I think she's probably like, um, <clears throat> she'd win the best teammate award if, you know, if there was the sportsmanship such a thing. award, she the sportsmanship sports- award yes. in the NBA, yeah, the Mike Conley award, because I kind of feel like everyone loves Nini, and you know, she hands the can opener, which some more ruthless competitors might just be like, no, go get your own, um, and Nini hands over the can opener and assists Gregory with his winning dish. Yeah, what was very interesting. Uh, so we're going to talk about Lisa for a second because uh, she had a very, she had a very strong quick fire dish. She did a. She did a uh, a citrus brown butter ribeye, which just sounds fantastic, by the way. Um, and then, you know, to get the blue food in there, she combines the cotton candy with the chili as a little sprinkle topping, and uh, it, it was it was a crowd pleaser. And sort of also, I, I don't think it was a it was a harbinger of any kind, but it was very Lisa food. I mean, I think what we're learning about Lisa is uh, the food is heavy. The food is what she calls rustic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I say this with no criticism. Like, I mean, she has a distinct style. She is probably the least technical chef in the competition. And and that's fine. There have been great chefs on this show that, that hey, that, that is sort of what they do. She'd probably do a kick-ass gastropub. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I would I, I would totally eat a Lisa Fernandez gastropub. Malarkey, on the other hand, is um, – does this curry pumpkin honey ice cream, which amazingly did not place in the bottom three. Maybe he <laughs> yeah. just I, – maybe the stuff tasted good. I, I have no idea. I, making ice cream for a quick buyer just sounds like a death trap. Did, did you mean for it to come out curd-like? <laughs> oh, man. Yes, he says. He responds and says, yes. You know what? Uh, I think that's the play is when some – when one of the uh, judges just asked, did you mean for it to come out tasting like poop? Uh, yes, of course. Yes, of course. I wanted that, Chef. Uh, you know, Brian knew that he screwed up with the ice cream, and he knew he wasn't going to get the texture that he wanted. But he plays along, uh, and he gets the curd-like curry ice cream uh, to come out. And it, um, you know what? The liquid nitrogen. Thank goodness it was there because it, it saved him uh, and saved some others in this in this quick fire. Yeah. So at, at the end of the day. Chef, least in need of immunity, wins immunity, and that's Gregory with his uh, butternut squash plantain soup. Karen places, Lisa places, and on the bottom, uh, we got we got we got Voltaggio for his supposedly mushy ceviche. We have Nini for her uh, very starchy uh, blue nookie, and Stephanie for her rainbow rice roll that was a little too difficult to eat, and whose cotton candy peanut sauce was a little too sweet for mm. Padma. So, um, yeah, that seemed like uh, a cannoli. Yeah. You know what I've noticed? And I, I think particularly this is true of, actually, I don't think it's particularly true of Padma. I think Tom will comment as well that they don't, don't make shit that's hard to eat for these judges. That's, it seems like it, it's a common thing. It more in kind of the, it, it's often more in the quick fire because you tend to do more finger food or appetizery food or quick food in a quick fire challenge than you do in a, in a, in an elimination challenge. But I just noticed these judges over 17 seasons, they don't like shit that's tough to eat, that's difficult to eat. I don't know if it's because like they're on television and you know you get self-conscious or if it's just kind of an annoyance, like you want to dig into something. And, and I, I, I think most people just don't want something that's too hard to eat. Um, and, and I just noticed that that is a good rule. If, if your shit is hard to eat, don't make it so. Yeah, you never want any ambiguity with your food. Now, spring rolls usually are finger foods like almost 100% of the time. But the problem is that in her finger – in her uh, – uh, spring roll, I guess it wasn't tightly wrapped enough, so it kind of fell apart as you picked it up. And of course, when you're dipping something, you never want it to fall apart into the salsa or into the dip. Uh, so that's kind of like one of my worst nightmares is when you when you dip in something into a sauce and it just kind of falls. Like when you're when you're at a sushi restaurant, and, and this is not at the top end of the of the sushi restaurants, but when you you try to dip in your little uh, your nigiri or, or whatever it is your your roll that you're getting, and it just kind of falls apart into the soy bucket. That's never a good sign. That's it's probably my mistake more often than not. But that's kind of what I think Padma's going for here is, especially when you're dipping something, make sure it's tight. And in this case, it was almost 
Um, you know, good thing this was a quick fire, not a elimination challenge for Steph. You know what I'm ready for, Tom? And because it's Los Angeles, I'm hoping that we will see. I'd like some Japanese challenges. Wouldn't it be great to quick fire to be hand roll? Like mm. hand roll, the hand roll quick fire would be a great quick fire challenge because you can get really creative with that stuff. You can go classical. I love an ankimo, little little monkfish liver with that plummy sauce, um, that, that plummy miso sauce that they put. In, in a lot of places, I, I would just love to see a little Japanese. I guess it's such a specialized skill. Is it fair to expect Top Chef contestants no. to become Japanese no. chefs for? 20 I'm sure years? we'll get it soon, right? Yeah, just like it, Los Angeles would be a particularly good place to do it. But uh, I, I'm ready for that. Uh, anyway, Tom, the elimination. Yes, the teams get picked at random, and I'm sure anybody who's been paying attention saw what I believe, I, I forget which, maybe it was Brian who, who off or on camera kind of said that the blue team was stacked, Tom. Holy I mean, this cow. looked like a mismatch from the beginning. Man, this was Gregory, Eric, Melissa, Jen, Karen, and Kevin. Uh, all the winners, I believe, on one team, right? Like yeah, so far, I mean, Melissa I, I, uh, has won. Uh, Kevin has won. And Gregory, Gregory has won. ran week one. Yeah, so this is a stack team, stack team. And you know what? Uh, I, I thought of you again. I thought this was very much a Kevin challenge here. Uh, Arnavit's challenge is, is go to the mar- the farmer's market and f- just pick amazing produce and do a great meal. Yeah, I mean, another kind of love letter to Los Angeles because look, common, farmer's markets are common everywhere, but kind of the culture of the farmer's market in Los Angeles, largely because, hey, you have so many farmers from the Central Valley and, and, and from Santa Barbara County and, and Ventura County. It's just a very – I don't people realize about California. It's just, it, it's just really agricultural. Uh, you think of it as a, it's a big city state, and it certainly is. And so these farmers just come in. They, you know, they drive two and a half hours, and, and around Los Angeles, I mean, you have got – I mean, the Santa Monica Farmers Market is incredible. That, I think this Wednesdays – is it Wednesdays and Sundays or Wednesdays and Saturdays? Hollywood is every bit as good, and that's on Sundays – you can go to Pasadena on Saturday mornings, the Sierra Madre and the high school there. Um, South Pasadena has a great Thursday. And, and so so much of your life as, as a cook in Los Angeles is heading to these farmer's markets and getting this just incredible produce stuff you've never seen before. Mm. Um, and it, it, it's just I, – I, it was so much fun to see some of the vendors that I know and love, like Harry's Berries was shown. Um, they do a Gaviota strawberry that is so good. It's like a little, the little green plastic um, – little uh what, what a little box or, or thing is uh is eight dollars and you i think the first time you're ever there you get sticker shock because like the fuck eight dollars for like <laughs> a little basket of strawberries come on and it's like the best eight dollars you will spend all week um so it was fun to see them a, a lot of the other farmers that that i recognize were there and it's also fun because you kind of on the fly like you can come with your recipe shopping list but what's really fun is calling an audible when you see something really perfect. And um, that's clearly what happened, you know, for instance, Kevin with his dates, which was nice to see. And they actually had the perfect judge for this competition. That is Jeremy Fox, uh, who Little Birdie is now, but Rustic Canyon to me is his flagship and just one of my absolute favorite places to eat when I'm in Santa Monica on that side of town. It, it, it's so bright, uh, bright, so fresh. He's very vegetable-focused. And uh, my friend uh, Noah Galutin actually co-wrote his uh, vegetable cookbook, which is, is awesome. And so this vegetarian challenge is kind of fun, and it's a nice limitation. Yeah. You basically have to find – you have to find substitutes for protein or just substantial enough dishes over the course of a progressive six course meal to make it work. This is kind of like a half restaurant wars to me is you have these teams and you have to create a menu, a progressive menu. And there is a little bit of a limitation here in that it has to be a vegetarian, vegetarian dish, but it kind of, it, uh, Just short of having a color scheme and a name for the restaurant um, and having, you know, assignments, you know, front of house and it felt like to me that this was as much a restaurant wars as you're going to get before restaurant wars actually happens. And so it was kind of fun to see them uh, have to function inside of this. Uh, We have to create a menu here, a progressive menu, and it's very clear that not just – 
um, the, the blue team was stacked, but they seem to conceptualize the progression of that menu way better than the red team. And by the way, once again, Brian Malarkey takes the lead and he is the alpha in this group. And I don't know if that's a good thing. All right. I, I have a note about this. Brian Malarkey suffers from the Dunning-Kruger effect. Are you familiar with this, this no. concept? No, Tom? please. It, it's like people who think they are much better at something than they actually are. In fact, the worse they are, often the better they think they are, hence the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. And I, I believe it's vice versa. Like, Brian Malarkey thinks he's really good at being a team leader when he's actually probably the least capable person in the group. It, it's not just because his personality is off-putting. It's that you can see it from every dish he ever does. He is never thinking about larger context. I mean, if you're going to be the team leader in a six-course progressive dinner – you gotta have to be an expansive thinker. Like, like for instance, in the in, in the context of the Myers Briggs, in my, my my pop science pseudoscience favorite personality categorization. Tom, you are an ENTJ. I am an <laughs> INTJ. Um, he is not an N. You need to be an N to be uh, the team leader. And, and he is a guy with the narrowest of thinking who is, charges himself with the responsibility of having the most expansive thinking. And it drives me nuts. And you could see from the outset. This team is probably going to lose not just because they're less talented, but because they have subjected themselves to this yo-yo's sensibility when assembling this menu. Sounds like you really wanted to trade him. I know. Actually, it was funny. I was going to call you after the show, and it's like, nah, he's not going to do it now. I meant to like look at the trade on Tuesday, and it's not like I'm busy because we're all just kind of hanging out. Um, and I, I kind of blew it, to be honest. Yeah, t- trade offer is uh, off the table. Everybody knows uh, – that that I I made the trade Jen for Brian Malarkey in the last episode. I pulled it off the table before oh, Kevin could accept God. it. So oh that God. is off the table. The second trade offer. You know what? Third time's a charm, Kevin. I should just offer you something and you're going to take it uh, just because the last two deals, the last two trade offers I have proposed to you and you have not taken. Uh, I think you're having a little bit of uh, not buyer's remorse. So Brian goes with the tomato and burrata mozzarella dish. And you could tell right from the start, Kevin, that he he was trying to sell the ultra simple idea. But man, it it did like Tom Kalika was just all over that one. Like, really? You're doing tomato and mozz? Hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer, and I'm here to talk to you about Butcher Box. ButcherBox is the most convenient way to get high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep, free shipping, vacuum-sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at butcherbox.com dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Tom, it's the classic overcorrection. 
He futzes around with too much shit the entire season so far. So now he's gotten the message. He's going to go simple. No, you overcorrected. Yep. By the way, it looked like a very pretty dish. I mean, I listen, I love broad and tomatoes. You love broad and tomatoes. Who mm-hmm. doesn't love broad and tomatoes? But when you put it up against Kevin's start, which was an heirloom tomato and melon salad with this gorgeous avocado puree, that, that lovely kind of um, sage green that, that just provides the beautiful canvas for all these other little um, just, just you, colorful jewels, right? And then he throws in the dates and the togarashi. Like, that's just... That is the perfect – I mean, tomato and melon salad with avocado puree, dates, and togarashi. I mean, Tom, does it get better than that? It doesn't, and the two things stood out for that dish is that he went to the market, and he was like, you know, I'm getting the best thing here at the market and incorporating my dish, which is the dates, the fresh dates, right? And what he did was almost what you want is he did a twist almost on tomato and burrata, uh, and did it in his own way. And so standing next to uh, Brian's dish, Malarkey's dish, it was very clear which one had more thought put into it. And if you're going to do a, a quote-unquote simple dish, make sure you nail the flavors. The, the vinaigrette that he put on that uh, tomato dish, Brian Malarkey, didn't work. And so if you're going to go simple, make sure you nail all the ingredients. It didn't seem like he did. Right. Like you could have – I mean things he could have done to that plate um, as – as, as Jeremy Fox said, you could have had a charred element, right? You also could have done a great crunch. You know, because, I mean, tomato and burrata, it's a wonderful dish. It, it does tend to be monotextual. I mean, you know, the tomatoes and cheese are a little different, obviously, but there's, there's, there's never kind of a bite. There's never a crunch. Like, you could have done that. You could have done, you know, the, the, the savory equivalent of, yeah. of Eric's chocolate soil, right? I mean, you could have done something black garlic crunch or, or whatever it is you wanted to do or a basil something, something. And, again, a classic over a correction because here's a guy – who has done too much, and now he's doing too little. And it, it just was it was patently obvious when you put the two dishes next to each other. Um, dish number two, likewise, right? Melissa comes out with a coconut corn soup, Tom, pickled garlic chives, and puffed grains. You talk about texture. You talk about flavors. Um, as Tom Calicchio said, not too sweet, which is always a hazard when you do a coconut-based dish. Um Wow, that was something. And again, it just looked gorgeous. Oh, it didn't it? I wanted to reach through my TV screen and just get that bowl and devour it. She is talented. And, and when, especially when you put it up against Leanne's butternut squash hummus with crudite and feta. Mm. Um, all right. So this is the source. And we, we talk about Malarkey and Leanne. This was the source of the conflict, really the first real inter-chef uh, conflict of the season was a number one her dishes rawness and simplicity underscored a big issue that the judges had from the outset which is this is a progressive dinner this is not oh throw six vegetarian dishes out there without attention to the contour of the meal this is you know and so they had these two raw vegetable dishes which pissed off Calicchio from the start and and then on top of that hers was under seasoned or under salted and you want to tell us about the conflict Tom Brian Malarkey comes in and tries to uh, – I don't know if it's sabotage, but he comes in and tries to season the plates uh, for her. Uh, I guess she she didn't have enough time. She needed some help, and so they pitched in, and Brian was in charge of seasoning uh, the tops of that dish. Now, a couple things happen here. One is, like you said, the first problem is that they didn't have any sort of progression. They were too similar. You don't want to do that. But secondly uh, – I think Brian realized that as the pseudo leader of this team, the de- leader, the de facto leader of this team, that's on him. The fact that they didn't conceptualize those two dishes better, that falls on the leader. And so I think what he had to do, which is what he did at the judges' table, do you want to get into it now, Kevin? Or do you want to get into it later? What he well, says. No, I mean, I want to get into it now. And, and, and yes. I, I take what you're saying in, in terms of the raw component, in terms of the were these well-selected dishes for the progressive dinner? I grant you that with malarkey. But I'm sorry. I, I just want to say this right now. There was a wonderful shot in the show of Melissa just whistling why she worked. She had this beautiful <laughs> dish that had about 14 different components. It was – presentation was key. It was intricate. And there she is by herself, time to spare, doing it. Leanne is like pig pen, Okay. 
throughout the entire season, there's just always a degree of mess and chaos around her. So this is what I want to know, Tom. Why don't you have time to finish plating? She says this, like, I didn't have time. I I was trying to get everything on the plate. You have a cold plate with crudite. Why are you scrapping at the last minute to get it on the plate? Melissa's over there with an artful presentation, a dozen components, as I said. You can't get hummus and veggies on a goddamn plate by yourself. You need you need Big Brother to come over and help you. So- what the fuck have you been doing for the last two hours? Like, she's got a hot dish. She's got soup. She's got these oils and essences and charred chives. And, like, she's by herself. What are you doing that you can't plate some goddamn hummus and carrots by yourself? It, it was a great juxtaposition. It was, and and the judges said it, and I thought I thought that was a great element of this episode, Kevin, is that, you know, while Leanne is, like, scrambling and everyone's trying to, like, fall over each other to help get that dish out, and it was a crudite hummus, right? Um, <laughs> there's Melissa just, just not even sweating, just right. there and just, like, here is the best dish, everyone. And I think it goes back... You know, Melissa is drawing upon past experiences a lot. You're seeing this theme is that Melissa, like Nini, is kind of conceptualizing things of things that she knows she can do, a grandmother's recipe, a family recipe, something that draws something out of her deep beneath her skin where it's just – it she – it feels like she has already thought about this dish hours before she gets the the challenge and she executes and she's barely sweating. She goes out there and the judges, you know, maybe, maybe Leanne has a little bit of stage fright. I don't know what happened, but it seems like the, the fact that the judges were watching them and that this was kind of cool to me is that they were kind of like uh, eavesdropping on the, sh- on the judges as they're eating. And there's just kind of this like, little gamesmanship. It's like, Oh, did they like my dish? Or did they like my competitor's dish? I don't know. Melissa doesn't give a shit. She's just there to execute works on the dish and then wins the whole damn thing. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, maybe Malarkey's a fuck stick. Maybe he's not, maybe he's screwed up the oil and the salt. Maybe he's not, you know what? Don't be in a position where you've got to count on the doofus next to you to season uh, your dish at the end. I mean, like, like just, Get it done. I mean, if you don't want to be subject to somebody else's fuckery, do it yourself. And the bottom line is, is of the 12 dishes in the competition, in terms of getting it on the plate, she had by far the least degree of difficulty. Maybe Malarkey was a close second or, or maybe one or two. But the bottom line is it shouldn't require assistance to get hummus and crudite and feta on a plate, Tom. Moving on. Dish number three. Really... Uh, interesting contrast that, that I, I think also in addition to the first two really kind of underscored the chasm between these two teams. On the blue team, we have Karen with this gorgeous, what I'm calling semolina pasta garden mm. with a mint pistachio pesto, which by the way, mm. Tom, I make a mint pistachio pesto from the Jelena cookbook that I love as an accompaniment on various things. Mm. So, uh, oh, it's wonderful. And um, Jelena's cookbook is great. I mean, it's honestly, I, my, my top, my top cookbook, and uh, fava greens, pea shoots, blanched asparagus. This gorgeous green late summer uh, pasta, as 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 um as Gail Simmons said, the pasta was was just present enough, right? Like it was in the background, really letting the brightness shine of of, of the greens. And then you had Lisa. Um, you had Lisa, a ch- chili soy Brussels sprouts with apple pistachio served at a dubious temperature. Um, you know, Tom, you, you, we, we both, you know, put a similar bid on Lisa. You ended up acquiring her last week. Um, must this, be a disappointment, I imagine. This hurt big time. Kevin, we get on Brian Malarkey for doing a dish that we've seen a thousand times, right? And that's what Gail said about the dish, right? It was a beautiful dish that we've seen a thousand times, tomato and burrata. Kevin, couldn't you say the same thing about Lisa's dish? The Brussels sprouts kind of fried with some sort of chili soy. Like I feel like I've had a citrusy uh, soy Brussels sprouts, greasy Brussels sprouts a billion times in my life. And I kind of felt like this was a side item way more than any other dish on this uh, episode. And when Padma says, uh, what temperature did you want for this? 
I just, I just wanted to crawl into a hole because I knew that as soon as Padma said that, it was over for Lisa. Not only was it not a, an overly inventive dish, it was – it seemed like a side. It wasn't composed as a dish. It was something that you would see for four $8 on the bottom of a menu. It wasn't, it wasn't a starter. So Lisa comes in with the, with the Brussels sprouts and it, and it, you know what, Kevin, I thought after the quick fire top three finish, I might have something of a late bloomer here with Lisa. And it turns out that she just did a stinker of a plate, a Brussels sprouts dish that I feel like I've eaten or ordered or seen on a menu a thousand times before. Yeah. So, I mean, here, here, my first question about this dish is, it's late summer in Los Angeles. Why are you serving something that looks like it belongs with a winter short rib braise? Right. And I mean, like, look, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I love, like, a good Brussels sprouts, uh, you know, glazed balsamic, some pancetta or shallots in there. Or I love that kind of apple and, and you know, I do, a, I do a Brussels sprouts with, with apple and Maui onions. You know what? I do it in the freaking fall. Right? Like, what it all – even malarkey, even Leanne. There were 11 dishes that really captured the brightness of late summer. This felt like a heavy mm. – now, now, what Lisa will say is that's the way I like to cook. Okay, fine, but this is a farmer's market challenge. Why are you deep frying anything? I mean maybe if you have a little tempura component yeah. on a more interesting plate. Why are you de- – this is a farmer's market challenge. If, you, if there's one week where you're not going to def- – Deep fry anything, it's going to be the farmer's market <laughs> challenge. And But this kind of – there's an understanding on Top Chef that over the course of the season, every chef is going to have some away games, right? She's – I'm a rustic chef. That's how I like to cook. That's great. I love rustic cooking. You love rustic cooking. And there's always going to be some away games. There's always going to be a, oh, this is a dessert challenge and I'm not a pastry chef. There's always going to be a – this challenge requires that I work with ingredients I never work with. So I think as a chef, you have to ask yourself, how do I hide my weaknesses? You know, how do I temper the inclinations I have that might not conform to the challenge? Okay, so I- I'm Lisa. I'm a rustic chef. Like, I get it. But but you just have to make it work. You can't just lay down with, hey, that's how I like to cook. Mm. Tough shit, judges. You know, like, well, okay. Well, yeah, you can, was you can tough out. shit it all the way back to the last chance kitchen. It was dried out, and they didn't like the temperature. And so, even if she did execute the flavor profile, she didn't cook it right. So, if you're gonna if you're gonna fry something, make sure you fry it correctly. And it didn't seem like she did that. Don't even fry it. I mean, I mean, that's that's the thing. I mean, I think it's sort of like like he doesn't. You know, they don't get the game. Um, it, there, there are challenges. Like, I think one of the most underrated qualities of, and I think you're seeing how strong Melissa is in this right now. One of the most underrated qualities is before you even pick up the first ingredient or do the first cut is what is the challenge? What do they want? They're very – sometimes they're explicit and sometimes the judges are implicit. But 40% of Top Chef is what is the challenge and what do they, what do they really want? Not, not sort of – so there's – oh, make a vegetarian menu. That's the ostensible challenge. But the, 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 the real challenge is – there is a milieu that's a farmer's market. There is a season. Look what everybody else is doing. It doesn't mean you have to conform, but why are you deep frying <laughs> essentially a root vegetable in a late summer farmer's market? You're, you're, you're just, also, you're just leaving money on the table. I mean, that, that's the problem. That's why she lost. Anyway, um, the fourth course was uh, interesting. We had, we had Stephanie on the red team, cauliflower a la plancha with a piri-piri sauce and quinoa. Really pretty dish and, and – um, Tom, Gail Simmons called it one of her favorite dishes of the night. Yes, and I thought going against Gregory, who I think might be the favorite here along with Melissa, um, you know, Steph could have been overshadowed here. And I thought she she did – she held her own um, on this one. And I think being in the bottom uh, probably doesn't do her justice. I thought it was a really nice dish. But going against Gregory, it's really difficult. Yeah, I was a little heartbroken. I saw your box score and it's like – Ah, damn. She might have had one of the three best dishes of the night, and she kind of got sandbagged by her shitty team. Um, Gregory, of course, does Gregory. Grilled and raw, you know, carrots, charred scallions, coconut yogurt, charred kale oil. Oh, so Tom, and, and, I, and I also – it's not only so for you. This is for the chefs who listen. I want to figure out how to do all these cool oils that people do. 
like like that 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 bright green emerald dot that mm. you see in Melissa's dishes or Gregory's dishes. Like, how do you do kale oil? Am I just I would like how do you get that extraction so you get that deep color or those black oils or so if there is a chef out there who knows how to do this I this is my I want this is my next my next this upcoming winter I want this to be my new trick is I want to learn how to do those little dot those little dots I want to get a little uh you know the little um the little oil sprinkles thing. yeah what, what, what does the thing go you know the little dripper the you know, whatever the eye drop you thing Picture? I want to do yeah. this. Yeah. I just want to do this next year, and I want to learn how to cook all these cool, colorful oils. Uh, Gregory, of course, the perfect balance, the coconut yogurt with the sweet. You get the charred scallions. You get some bite there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just classic Gregory. Um, Jen, by the way, going on to five, Tom, um, she looked like early on they were kind of tipping the hat that she might be on the on the chopping block because she has her coriander brown butter got completely torched um, and it needed to be on the bottom of her dish. And especially if you're doing like, you know, charred cauliflower, Tom, it can be dry. You gotta, you gotta have some, some wet on that plate because it, you know, you, and she was just, she was panicked. Kevin, who do you think did it? Do we think anyone did it? I, she also seems like the kind of person who, you know, it's like who stole my keys. Oh, they're in my hand kind of person. Mm, could be, but I do think that Eric might've been the, the, uh, the assailant here. Cause you, are look, you accusing? I might, I might Eric <laughs> of surreptitiously sabotaging another contestant. Eric, I, I, no, I turned it off. Suggest Kevin, such a thing, Kevin. He says no. I turned it off. Which, if you're looking at a dial, couldn't that be an easy mistake? Is sending it the wrong direction, and so you're actually putting on full blast rather than turning it off. It's the equivalent of turning off a hose, but instead of turning it off, it's actually you're turning it in full blast. Lefty Lucy, righty tighty. Right. I think it was a lefty Lucy, righty tighty issue for for uh, for Eric. And you know what? We didn't get the full spectrum, and we should ask Eric this question is, what really happened there? Was there was there a clue game going on? Was there more that we didn't see? Because the editing team, what an episode by the editing team uh, from for Top Chef and Bravo. Because this was a uh, – for sure, I thought that she was screwed. I thought Jen was done. Uh, I but would she- love to see a forensics report, Tom. I mean, because I mean, obviously somebody knows, and I'm sure there's yes. a camera on. There's a camera. There's cameras but, everywhere on this show. We know who did it. We just didn't find out on this episode. So, so Tom, though, she she recovered. Everyone really liked her jerk cauliflower, the cashew sauces, the broccoli flowers, and grapes. She's having a good season. Uh, she was up against a very tough competitor in Brian, who did smoked beets with sprouted legumes and grains. Um, a demigloss. Another question I have for chefs. I would love to know how to do a veggie demigloss uh, because I just that's to me always been like beef broth and um, I, I just how do you do that because how do you get the broth you want from uh, from vegetables but um, both were very nice meaty substantial dishes. Kevin, uh, I have a question for you on this. Yeah, if you're Jen and you're yeah. presenting your dish, yep. to the judges, do mm-hmm. you mention the snafu? Mm-mm. No, Mm-mm. you don't. Mm-mm. So you don't mention, hey, Mm-mm. I originally had this conception. Nope. Conception. Nope. Wow. See, I might, I might have said, nope. look, there was an issue in the back, and I decided to audible here, and I think you might get even brownie points for putting together an amazing dish in such a bind. I don't think they give a shit whether <laughs> or not. I, I, I would never do it. So, um, Tom. All right. Dessert looked great. Yeah, and it should because if you're doing a non-meat dish, if it's a vegetarian challenge, the dessert should be the easiest dish to pull off, right? I mean, yes and no. I think what we've learned from watching this for 17 years is – and we know this from just going out. Like I think pastry chef is a different animal. Like there are a lot of amazing chefs who when it comes to dessert – and you always see the panic. And often it's some of the most prestigious chefs on, on each season who are like, oh, shit. There's always an oh shit moment. Like I've got to do a dessert and not everybody is equipped with that tool. So on one hand, I think, yeah. On the other hand, it's clear anytime dessert comes up, nobody really wants to do it except there's always one or two chefs who are like, I got my start in pastry. Right. Like, um, now fortunately, Eric and, and, and Nini just had, first of all, Nini's peaches and cream. I'm calling it a whoopie pie. I know they called it a cream puff, but that looked fantastic with peach sorbet and I'm a peach guy. And Eric's butternut squash goat milk pudding with a chocolate hazelnut crunch. Goodness gracious. Wow. Both. I think that was the strongest round, right? 
Like the dessert I, round was flawless. Yeah, I mean, I, I gotta tell you the. Uh, yeah, I guess so because like I love Melissa's. Um, but yeah, that the that was yeah because there's kind of like a you know especially with with Melissa's and and Karen where Karen like obviously got the dish and then Lisa it was it was kind of lopsided right I think this was the strongest round both of them just nailed this and and you know what like I said if in a vegetarian menu the dessert should have the least constraint because how many desserts are having a meat product in there it's not. So I think in this instance, right. they really came through, and the bar might be higher for desserts, but they, they absolutely accomplished it. Nailed it. All right, so chopping block. I mean, it, it, you know, Melissa wins. We, we talked about just how incredibly she is just on, and she is dominant right now. She is in a zone. Uh, and again, it, it's just so nice to see, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I you know, had a chance to pick her at six. I mean, can you imagine? You know what? Now? One thing Gail said while she was up there, Melissa talking about Melissa's dish discovery was a big part of that meal. I love that comment. That is such a cool thing when you're eating something and you just find new things. Like it's a scavenger hunt and you're like, wow, that was a really interesting each, each bite. You seem like you're on a journey. And it seemed like that was a, was essential to Melissa's dish that you're just surprised at every bite and every flavor and every texture. Um, and Melissa just, boom, she is, I don't know if she is the favorite. Like if you're redrafting, is Melissa your number one pick? I don't know, but, um, man just nails two dishes, two episodes in a row. Yeah. There is mystery and there's beauty in her cooking right now. Um, I think it was understood that it was probably actually, I, I don't know. I mean, it was sort of an interesting chopping block because Lisa and we've talked about each of their transgressions. Um, I wasn't sure if poor execution in this case, Lisa would trump poor ambition, which was malarkey. Of course, the grand irony is he's always trying crazy shit and sometimes it works. I mean, he's had some nice, nice dishes, but, um, and sure enough, they, they kind of they gave it to Lisa just at the end of the day. Look, Malarkey's food tasted good. Uh, Leanne's food probably tasted good by all accounts. I mean, I frankly, butternut squash hummus sounds delicious. I mean, I don't think it's like a world-beating dish, but I mean, and but at the end of the day, the only dish that didn't taste good out of the 12 was Lisa, and so she goes home to Last Chance Kitchen, uh, which is interesting. Yeah, Last Chance Kitchen was great. Um, I think when, just to re- rewind a little bit, I was curious to see what you thought about Brian Malarkey saying, uh, yeah, but did you, did you guys say that the, uh, the butternut, like, like the fact that Brian was trying to dump on Leanne's dish was an interesting strategy there that probably I thought was going to send him home, but Lisa's dish actually was the one I was surprised that those two Leanne and Brian stayed and Lisa went home. I think either of them could have gone home, but of course Lisa does go home uh, and she goes to Joe Sasto's, uh, you know, the competition uh, in last chance kitchen and just to recap real quick, if if Angelo and Jamie Lynch aren't hammered drunk during these things, I'd be surprised because I love the banter from from the peanut gallery here. Uh, Kevin, what was the challenge? Challenge was use a fryer because <laughs> that is what uh, doomed Lisa. And I love the fact that there's always a symmetry to Last Chance Kitchen. It's, yes. It's, you have to go and atone for your sins. Yes. And which is just a cool premise. I love Last Chance Kitchen. I, I've come to absolutely some of my favorite 10 minute, 12 minute viewing of the week. And Lisa does uh, pork chops and she's going to do, um, you know, an applesauce and, and a potato latke fritter. And she nails it. Joe Sasto kind of, of the, from the Italian cooking tradition, is going to do like one of those fried cheese. And initially, he's going to do it with a creamy sweet potato puree, which I don't really get because I think with fried cheese, you want some sort of tanginess to offset or even a little acid. So smart, he intelligently ditches that yeah. and goes for uh, a tomato and corn jam. But ultimately, Tom, Lisa wins. Yes, and she does. You know does. why she won? Why did she win? Well, um, because she, she's a gastropub uh, <laughs> chef because this is her thing. This is her jam. I also think Tom kind of – it kind of goes back to the malarkey uh, sin in the, in, the, in the main competition, which is Tom wants you to do more. Tom wants you to do more. Like, like I, I think he's a guy as a judge, even more so than Padma or Gail. It's like 
you have an honor to be on this show. Why are you cooking me like tomato and burrata? Why are you – you got the deep fryer and you're doing eh, some fried cheese and that's the only fried component and then you're doing tomato. Like, like use the fryer. Do more. He's just a guy who wants – you know, it, 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 it doomed Angelo the previous week. Chances are in a head-to-head competition, if both dishes taste good, Kalikia will always reward the contestant that does more. Yeah. And that's what she did. She, um, she, she with the pork chop. I didn't know if that idea. I was actually kind of nervous when she mentioned it. I was like, "Ooh, I'm not definitely not going to get a plus one on this one." She gets the plus one, so she redeems herself a little bit. I spent six dollars or six points drafting her, so that cost me six points right off the bat. Then she gets one point for finishing in the top three of the quick fire. Then drops five points for. Uh, for being eliminated, and then she gets a plus one for uh, for leaving or for continuing in the last chance kitchen. So in the end, uh, she gets minus five. I had it minus four in the books. I probably over overdid that there. Double counted here. But Kevin, let's go real quick here. Scoring. This was a difficult scoring for me this week because there were two teams. The bottom team. Obviously, there was a bottom three. So what I did here, Kevin, and I, I, I changed it this morning after some thought. So I actually put Stephanie and Nini in the middle, quote unquote, getting two points each for surviving in the middle. I did not dock them for being in the bottom two or in the bottom team because I normally go and by Voltaggio the book. too, right? Uh, yes. So I right. normally go by the book. And say, if you're in the bottom team, you're getting in the bottom three points. However, in this particular episode, there was such a clear bottom three in the judges' comments. And when they were discussing the Knicks, uh, when they're discussing the things that went wrong for the dishes, they never once mentioned Brian Voltaggio or Nini or Stephanie. If they said anything that was negative about them, I would have been like, okay, we can't really suss out who's in the bottom three. But in this particular episode, I went a little bit off book and I said, you know what? The bottom three was clearly Leanne, Brian Malarkey and uh, Lisa. Yeah. And those, and those three chefs, I mean, Voltaggio, Nini and, and, and Stephanie cooked, Really complimentary dishes. I mean, all the judges love their three dishes. Uh, I mean, frankly, I think every bit as much as as the winning six. So um, I appreciate your 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 attention uh, to that. I totally support that move. In fact, I was sort of thinking like, ah, you know, there are three chefs who are getting jobbed here just by virtue of the fact that you know they were, you know, they were on Nitwit Brian's team. But, but they um, get points. They get points. They get points. And, pe- yeah, and people good. who have really good dishes that get in the middle every week, like they get job too. So sometimes you just happen to be uh, going against the 2017 Warriors. Uh, Tom, any closing thoughts? Um, there's another segment here, Kevin, that I want to put you towards, or the people at home. There's a segment on on Bravo.com that's a kind of like a, a supplement like Last Chance Kitchen, but what would Tom do? And it's the the conceit is Tom Colicchio. What would he do in elimination challenge? The elimination challenge dishes. And I encourage people to watch this at home uh, because it's pretty cool. This week, what would he do with a vegetarian dish? He does a chanterelle uh, pasta with a sweet potato puree, and it's a beautiful dish. And you get to see Tom in action in the chef in the in the kitchen executing a dish so if people aren't listening uh or watching that they should the score right now of our top chef pack your knives fantasy squads 79 for team tom 50 for team kevin i had 25 points this week you had 14 so the gap keeps getting larger kevin you gotta have a big week five i need some help tom it's been fun tom haverstro this is kevin arnovitz and this is Pack your knives. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.